0: Welcome back to After the Buzzer. I'm Bob Wallace, the chair of the sports law practice at Thompson Coburn here in St. Louis. Thanks for joining us for another episode of our podcast. When I decided to start doing these podcasts, I did so because I wanted to share some of the great conversations I've had over the years with some great sports people. One person who always brings a fascinating view to the table is my guest today, Professor Kenneth Shropshire. Ken is one of the leading thought leaders in sports and has been since the early 1980s when he worked for the Los Angeles Olympics Committee. After practicing law for several years, Ken moved to Philadelphia where in 2004, he founded and led the University of Pennsylvania's Wharton Sports Business Initiative, which became one of the world's most respected sports business think tanks. Universally respected by his peers, Ken served as the president of the Sports Lawyers Association and chaired the ABA forum on sports law. After 30 years at Penn, where he is still recognized as a Wharton Endowed Professor Emeritus, Arizona State University recruited him to become the Adidas Distinguished Professor of Global Sports and the CEO of its Global Sports Initiative. Ken's guidance and wisdom on major sporting issues is widely sought after. He has worked for and consulted with the NCAA, Major League Baseball, the NFL, the NFLPA, and the USOC. He has also advised PGA golfer Rory McIlroy. Ken hosts a weekly sports business show on Sirius Radio and is a prodigious author, including Negotiate Like the Pros, a top sports negotiator's lesson for making deals, building relations, and getting what you want, being Sugar Ray, the life of America's greatest boxer and first celebrity athlete, and in black and white, race and sports in America. His two most recent books, Sports Matters, Leadership, Power, and The Quest for Respect in Sports, and The Miseducation of the Student-Athlete, A Manifesto to Fix College Sports, are must-reads for those interested in the sports base, or more importantly, those who work in it. Today in my conversation with Ken, we cover how the Global Sports Institute uses ASU like a teaching hospital, all kinds of cutting-edge sports research, the possible roadblock to someday paying student-athletes, the interplay between sports and social justice from John Carlos to Colin Kaepernick, and what's behind Tiger's resurgence in the world of golf. As I said, my conversation with Ken, whether over a cigar, at dinner, or during side conversations at sports lawyers board meetings, are always interesting and insightful, and exactly the type of A thoughtful conversation we want to bring you at After the Buzzle. Here's my conversation with Kenneth Shropshire.
1: That sounds like a very, very impressive title. The Global Sports (laughs) (laughs) Institute. Tell us, what is the Global Sports Institute and what do you guys do?
2: Well, you you know, as as you said, the Global Sports Institute was... For me, it was the next step. I'd been at the the Wharton School and grew this thing called the Wharton Sports Business Institute. Arizona State University came to me and said, well, what about using the whole university to address issues related to sports? What about thinking about the science-related departments, the sociological departments, the athletic department, using all those areas to further analyze sport And, and, more importantly, use the Cronkite School of Journalism and Mass Communication to disseminate that information? So they said, would you like to come and you know, be the CEO of this thing? Says, First of all, I haven't been CEO of anything. So I said, well, okay, that that sounds like a good idea. Uh, but also the the idea of being deeply involved in getting the messages out uh, through the journalism school. We're, we've been doing our share of podcasts. We're working on some documentaries. And daily we publish a piece called uh, Global Sport Matters. It's globalsportmatters.com that disseminates this information that, that we think is useful and impactful, much of the way you, you describe your show.
1: Is there a focus of the Institute? Are you focusing on a specific topic, or is it sort of a broad-range uh, look at sports?
2: In the daily publication, it's broad. So One day we'll look at should your kid play with a concussion, and the next day we'll look at uh, should we be hosting Olympic Games in third-world countries. Uh, yesterday we had a piece on the first female to go into a locker room as a reporter in Major League Baseball, so we look at different issues every day. But we do have an annual theme. The first year's theme, uh, which which just finished up, was focused on sports and technology, sports and innovation. This year, we're actually focused on sports and race. Um, yeah, I thought it was very important to to do that this year. And again, it was the same focus of what should people know about this? How can people use the information that we know about race and sports? But this is the fiftieth anniversary of the 1968 Olympics and the iconic Olympic protest on the victory stand by John Carlos and Tommy Smith. So we wanted to make sure we honored that, looked at that, and and for those that aren't as old as you and me, kind of make sure people understood that history and the connection between that protest and the Kaepernick and other NFL-related protests uh, dealing with police brutality and social justice.
1: Right. I saw on your website that you did a forum with uh, John Carlos uh, and...
2: Wyoming Beaters, yeah, the, uh, Wyoming
1: Beaters, right, and and that that very topical with you know their protests and what's going on uh, with Colin Kaepernick now, and I'm I want to get into that in a little bit. Uh, sure, but t- tell me a little bit about the first year in the technology aspect and what you guys were kind of focusing on there. Were you talking about was it wearable technology or is it esports? Uh, something I completely don't understand.
2: So that's the fun thing about being an academic. Now, if you ask me what I know about the technology and innovation side, uh, you know, especially with the pure science kinds of things, I mean, you and I think a lot about how to change systems, how laws should be better. But to think about, do wearables really work? Does, does wearing a Fitbit really make a difference? Is Gatorade better than water? Should you pay that extra money for, for hydration? Um, A faculty member is studying the transition of an athlete from male to female. How does the testosterone levels, like, how does that impact performance? Um, So so all these kinds of issues that that we we know are out there. Why are people fascinated by eSports? Well, the the injuries that happen to eSport participants tend to be uh, less fit than other types of, of athletes. Should we consider them athletes? But all those issues have fallen into play as we've looked at that technology space. So, you know, but part of this job, the great thing, is I, I learned a tremendous amount. And we still have research that's coming in from that. In terms of funding, we funded, I think, about 20 different projects across uh, Arizona State University and elsewhere, averaging about $20,000 a piece to either begin research or complete some research on different topics. So, so it's a wide range of things that, you know, you and I don't think about day in and day out, but will be important in, in the sports space.
1: Well, I think about how you get a 62-year-old guy who used to think he was an athlete to continue to perform at a high level or get to a high level, <laughs> continuing may be getting carried away. So are you involving the uh, athletic program at Arizona State? Are they involved in this and supportive of what's going on and some of the research that you guys are doing?
2: Very much so. I mean, you know, but, but Ray Anderson, the athletic director here at Arizona State University, was a college teammate of mine. and. So he was really instrumental in my coming here. As I mentioned, you know, we try to utilize the whole university. One of the things that's unique about what we're able to do here is the athletic department, unlike athletic departments in other places, they have said, you know, you can use us like a teaching hospital, like a research hospital. If there's any data that we have or that you want to begin to accumulate that, of course, are within the don't violate the privacy rights or other interests of the athletes, student athletes, uh, we want you to do that. We want to know. Is there a way to increase the graduation rates of our athletes? And if we can figure out ways to do that, let's share that information with others. We we want to know if somebody comes in with a certain GPA and, and uh, test scores, uh, are there ways to elevate them? What are their chances of success? So it's in a number of realms. We, we have begun to, to work with them, and and, that, and that's just gotten underway, but it's the access and the connectedness is uh, uh, is unique, and, you know, you're an old Ivy athlete. At you know, Penn, the athletics for wonderful, but it's just a, a whole different kind of level here and a different type of, of student athlete that comes to a place like Arizona State.
1: Oh, and that's a good kind of segue, Ken, into some of your writing. And one of your writings that I found very interesting was your book on the miseducation of the student-athlete. And you and I probably have sat around and talked about the NCAA, and I'll call it, because now you're part of it a lot more than than I am, some of the hypocrisy that exists in in big-time college athletes. When people talk about the student-athlete, which is sort of a term, I always tell you it's the athlete-student. Because, in my opinion, uh, so many of these big-time college programs, the student part is often forgotten. Uh, And kids are spending so much time on their sport that they don't really get a chance to be a student. And you talk about that in your book. Kind of give me your thoughts on, do we really have student-athletes?
2: You make a great point. And when you said athlete-student, I did pause for a moment. I think the student-athlete label is, today, the best we can say is it's aspirational that we need to have a goal, we need to have something to point to. As you know, the, the original creation of the phrasing by the, I guess he was the, the initial uh, executive director of the NCAA, Walter Byers, it was created for legal reasons to make sure that the, the student athlete, the athlete would not be able to receive the benefits that employees would receive if injured on the job and that sort of thing. So so that you could you could avoid that kind of circumstance. And it's stuck, and it's you know it is it, kind of an interesting phrasing. Well, this is a great! Somebody who can do both. Well, I will say today, it is very difficult for any athlete student to do both, to, to be successful at both, uh, at the highest level with both. And that's the kind of reform that I think we need to think about. And that's what the miseducation of the student athlete looks at: is is what could we do differently? We're we're kind of stuck in this mode of of doing things the way we have can we do them differently and can we do them better? And and some of the kinds of things that we talk about are the idea of just be honest from the beginning and and say, uh, okay, the typical student at this university takes five years to graduate. uh, We're going to give you, you in best case, a lifetime, but we're going to give you seven, eight years. We're going to give you funding for this period of time. And we're actually going to work with you constantly in a counseling mode of how to accomplish this. So, you know, one of the major lawsuits uh, involving Northwestern University, right. involving uh, King Coulter, was, hey, I wanted to be a physician, I wanted to be a doctor, I wanted to go to med school, and if I found out, I couldn't do it because of the timing of practice and the like. Well, you know, maybe as you come in, you th- you think about it differently. Don't don't give up your aspirations, but set it up on a different calendar, and-, and set it up so that the school is funding you in a way that you can get it done and all this, you know, for for guys like that, and and for for women wanting to go to the WNBA. So it depends on whether or not you make it to the pros, but be flexible enough to to work with kids in in that kind of way. So so that's just a, kind of a small part of the kind of thing that we think about.
1: The Northwestern uh, situation, and I read some of the opinions on that case uh, on the workers' comp uh, and whether they were, and, and no, the, the NLRB board, uh, I actually agreed that th- those athletes were employees. Uh, their time was controlled. They, they were not getting paid in the traditional sense, but they were getting some compensation in, in terms of their uh, athletic scholarships. You know, they were controlled like employees were. they coming and goings, And I was a little surprised, I mean, I, no, nothing surprises me anymore that, <laughs> that was kind of dismissed out uh, that they weren't employees, but the description of their relationship with the athletic department and their coaches was of that of an employee in a, in a business.
2: You know that, well, that was really difficult for me uh, when I saw that language in, in that initial opinion. My son was then a he was a freshman that year at Northwestern playing Division One tennis. He was you know number one on the team, and I did talk with him you know, on a regular basis about the, the kinds of time struggles that he had. And you know, wistfully, I thought back to my time in in college, where you were able to do both. And I kept trying to figure out, well, you know, is, is this kid telling me what's really going on? Is, is it really that hard for him to do both? Uh, he, he ended up getting out with a degree and all that sort of thing. But but it was not easy. And I and, I, and he did help me to recognize that it's very different from you know anybody kind of. 40 and over that's listening to this and you think of these guys are kind of selling a bill of goods about how tough it is, it is a whole new day from the way it used to be.
1: My son, as you know, and both of them went to Northwestern and my son played at Yale, they spent a whole bunch of time on their sports and it was a full year commitment, and I was sitting in the stands watching a game one day with one of my teammates, and he said if Carm Coza ever told us that we had to get up at 6.30 in the morning and lift weights in February, we would have all quit. Uh, (laughs) And and he was 100% right. Jim Delaney, the commissioner of uh, the Big Ten, has argued that we're asking the student-athlete to spend too much time uh, on their sport, uh, that they don't have a chance to be a student uh, or study abroad or work study project. Can we change it, or has uh, I guess the overriding question, Ken, I asked you, has has money ruined college athletics?
2: For sure, the as they say, the horse is out of the barn. I mean, it it is very difficult, if not impossible, to think about reeling it back. So this is why when I try to think about how to reform things, certainly things you can do. Certainly you can better police the twenty hours a week, you you can make sure the athletes get the food that they need so they can study properly. I all these things that were were out there and you, you kind of shrugged and said, you know, it's crazy, why would that even be a problem? But I think the, the whole idea of extending the calendar, extending the opportunity to get the education that, that these young men and women wanna get. At least when they come in and they are uh, kind of 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 the most open frame of mind about the importance of education. But also I think you cannot give enough credit to the value of great counseling, the value of, of somebody who really cares working with them about what their life is going to be like in the future. And, and, and all the reality checks of, you know, even if you make it to the pros, that might be a, a one, two, three year kind of thing. It might be a, a month long thing. Both
1: of us have mentioned our sons who were college athletes. We kind of look at the helicopter parents when we talk about LeVar Ball, uh, the AAU kind of things going on, and and the Rice Commission that just kind of looked at college basketball. What do you think of the study that, uh, I guess your colleague out at Stanford came out with Dr. Rice, and what do you think of what they've discovered over the past when they looked at college athletics?
2: I don't, yeah, yeah, it's funny you, you saying that. When, when we were, were talking about doing the show, I was reflecting on, you know, the day of the announcement coming out of the Rice Report, you know, pointy-head guy that I am, I read it right away, and I forget how many pages it was, but I kept looking for more pages. I kept waiting to say, okay, now where's the great revelation? And, and there really wasn't anything. The power of it, though, was that the NCAA said they were going to act pretty quickly to do – uh, some of the recommendations that are in there, but it was it wasn't earth shattering. It wasn't anything that we didn't know already. So, and I think we're still evolving in terms of of the response that's coming to the report. I think you know the one that I'm you know been focused on for a while this idea of when you can go to the pros and the idea of the NBA moving itself back and allowing kids to go straight from high school. I always I always thought you know any kid should have the opportunity to do wherever they can go, whatever they can go. Right. that if you're the computer expert or you're the, the, the opera singer or whatever, if if you're ready at an early age and the, the enterprise is a safe place to be in, then then we should let you go. So, uh, and I think the NBA, for example, has done and will do a fine job of, of telling kids, no, you're not ready yet. Right. And, and part of it, too, uh, the changes that need to be made is make sure that messaging can be given and the kid can make the right decision. So the, the right sport, I think, it was a great moment in time. A great moment for that information to be disseminated, but uh, wasn't a whole lot new in there.
1: Right. So now, in your, but your book, "The Miseducation of the Student Athletes," the the subtitle is "How to Fix College Sports."
2: Uh, <laughs> how are you? How are you fixing that, that, it, Professor? That's to sell books. Come on. You know, <laughs> if I had that answer, I'd hire you to represent me so we could sell it somewhere. Uh, <laughs> you know what? So it's, 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 it's really, you know, I, we have a uh, probably aggressively titled manifesto. in there to talk about the kinds of things that that should be done. And and largely, as as I said, a lot of it, if we cut through it, is really about better education. It it really is about uh, giving these kids the information they need, but also shifting the dollars. And and you alluded to this too. I mean, there's a lot of money in college sports. And and, and as you said, it's not going in the direction of the student athlete. So I wrote this in the midst of this conversation about paying student athletes,
1: right? So should we, really, that's, that's my, should we pay them?
2: That's that's my question. Should we well, pay them? Well, you know, I practice this answer very carefully. So so um, there's nothing wrong with it. I mean, so if you, if you did, there'd there'd be nothing wrong with it. But in my mind, the expenditures that we should be focused on are on making sure these kids get their degrees, they get their their education. And when I say degrees, I often qualify that with meaningful degrees. That's not right. just you kind of running people through the mill. So I don't I don't have a problem. If we could get that set up and we use all the dollars and we say, hey, we've still got some left over, then I think paying these, these guys and, and women is is a good thing. Somebody, one of the big advocates of paying athletes said, well, does it, have, it doesn't have to be either or. So I'm not adverse to doing both at the same time either. I just, just want to make sure the priority of education doesn't get lost.
1: Right and one of the things that you you always hear on why we can't pay the athletes is that well we can pay the football and basketball players because they're the ones generating all the revenue right. but we can't pay the women's swim team because nobody comes to see them other than their parents and they're getting in for free. Uh so is there a way to to sort of reconcile those two things?
2: Yeah, I almost always whenever I write something about this or otherwise, you know, I start off with there's nothing wrong with it. Then I say, you know, but we have to focus on the important issues related to Title IX, as you're pointing out. And then the the third I say is, you know, which which takes you away from using a pure open market principles, which is the answer which which, which people point to. Just open up, and and you know, schools will pay what they can pay, and it will all balance out. Well, that may or may not take care of Title IX. It may not be balanced in that kind of way. So you do that, and then you you shift. Additional funding to uh, women's athletics to make sure the balance is there, so that is a a possibility. But the, you know, so the fourth piece is is the fact that we can't figure it out, or we haven't taken the time to figure it out. Is that a reason not to do it? So um, I have never taken the time to try to figure it out. The people that say they figured it out, they often are, are saying open market, but they seem to forget about the Title nine issues that make the open market problematic. <laughs>
1: Your other book, the recent book, not because you've written a bunch of them, uh, the Sports Matters book, which is you talk about leadership, power, and the quest for respect in sports. Uh, and then you talk about, you know, the Ray Rice incident. You talk about the Miami Dolphin incident uh, and the bullying with Richie Incognito. And your second year of, of the Global Sports Institute, you're talking about race and social issues. Talk a little bit about what you're hoping to find as you look at all those things going forward.
2: You know, that book, the Sport Matters book, Really looked a lot at what leadership did when those things occurred, and, and I think that's that's so important. And that book was written a, a couple years ago now, and we were able to look at the, the leadership issues. Uh, you know, how did Adam Silver uh, perform when you had the, the Donald Sterling racism with the LA Clippers? What what did he do? And, and we gave him high marks for acting quickly, for uh, essentially you know forcing the sale of, of a franchise in a way that. Yeah, you know, there had not been a commissioner that moved back quickly on an issue before. With the Ray Rice incidents, we, we talked about, you know, the Roger Goodell issues and, and how uh, it's just the NFL bungled the path that they took that they didn't move swiftly enough, they didn't make enough statements about their true position on the issue uh until as you recall, and in this atmosphere of uh of of trying to approve a Supreme Court justice, right. it, more and more information Began to come out with videos and the like, and rather than, than taking the right position, it took a while to do that. Also, and there, we talk about the leadership issues. You know, another negative one is, is Snyder's ownership of the Washington Football Club and the refusal to address the, the changing of the name. And that, that that to me is just a a huge leadership issue, and you know, a, a, a guy and an enterprise with blinders in terms of what will be the best move to take in, in terms of being a leader. So. The, the great quote that I use in the book to, to look at these different circumstances is uh, from JFK in Profiles in Courage. You know, sooner or later, we'll all have the opportunity to be courageous. And and it really is how will you act when that moment comes, which I've connected up today with Kaepernick and Malcolm Jenkins and sort of all these, these guys uh, that have said, look, I've got this platform for this moment. Let me lead in, in the way that I can lead on this issue that's important to me.
1: Well, and going to that leadership point of view, and you mentioned that there has been some drop balls on the NFL landscape in terms of the Washington Football Club, Ray Rice, maybe even the Miami Dolphins situation. Right. Uh, I guess the question is, in light of what's going on with the Me Too movement, in light of the Supreme Court, and then uh, did Adam Silver just drop the ball with Mark Cuban and not doing something uh, stronger when they found all the uh, issues of sexual harassment in his workplace?
2: Yeah, that that's a great question, right? Because, you know, the the maximum fine, I think it was $2.5 million. Mark Cuban steps up and says, I'll pay $10 million, I think, to, to women's organizations or however they decided to do it. It does get you paused from, huh? Can you buy your way out of of actual prosecution? And then, as, as we're we're talking through this, there's a moment where, you know, again, not trying to equate things, this one-time icon, Bill Cosby, you know, sadly 81 years old, is is being incarcerated for crimes against women. Just the imagery of 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 what's going on in this day and age, and has silver finally fallen short? Should he have done some more? If it's the whole organization. And you're the you're the person running the organization, and I just you know again this is money I can't grasp. Is ten million dollars is that adequate punishment, relative to a uh, racist comments by an owner? which, frankly, you know, enhanced his pocketbook by a, co- a couple billion dollars. Right. But having been forced to sell, it can't be the owner anymore. I guess that's the real punishment that, that came about there. So, yeah, it's difficult. I mean, yeah, what, are, what are the right punishments in these circumstances and what are the right statements? But, but yeah, I haven't I, really focused on that one that much as one of those issues, but I think you're absolutely right.
1: So the social movement, we have we have Kaepernick, who's really the, the leader in this generation of doing that. But, you know, it goes way back when to, uh, you know, the athletes, John Carlos and, and Tommy Smith and uh, Muhammad Ali. And there's this one side of people, and, and, and maybe it's the Jerry Joneses of the world and to some extent the Roger Goodell's, which are saying, uh, shut up and dribble or shut up and kick. Uh and then you have the athletes that are are willing to take a stand. You know, what's your position on that? My position and I'll and I'll say is that I think what these athletes are doing is courageous, uh it's peaceful and it's bringing the attention that only their platform can bring.
2: Nah, I I I am you, and you do sit back and say I wonder wonder if I would do this. I, you know, when Carl Smith were on the victory stand, uh raising their you know, black glove fists I was 13 years old, and it was inspiring, and it was it was a, a statement. I said, you know, yeah, I could do that. And to think about, uh, you know, the, the Kennedy quote that I mentioned: when, when you have the opportunity, would you really do it? Would you really step up? And it, so these men and, and women, I mean WNBA uh, teams, you know, you could even say that they were at the forefront in terms of. Let's, let's do this as a team where the T-shirts come out together and, and, and that sort of thing. I am impressed. I think, you know, the, the leadership moment problems there have been, again, the, the NFL is leading the way and fumbling on, huh, how do we respond to this and, and allowing the President of the United States to hijack the issue and recast it as an anthem issue. I, I'm glad uh, uh, that the players have moved more aggressively to making expenditures and doing activities uh, that, that show their concern for the social issues, for the, for the criminal justice issues, um, and moved away from the protests that were able to be maneuvered to be the focal point of controversy. So, so I think it's going to be interesting to see what happens over the next uh, a couple of years, how these athletes continue to move. Will the NFL continue to fund, you know, to give them credit at a high level of uh, the activities of, of these athletes? But, yeah, it, it's so impressive to me it's, 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 you can do you can, you know, again it it's, 's it's kind of like uh, being the great student and the athlete to be the great activist and the great athlete at the same time that too is, is not an easy thing to do
1: for years or the last couple of years when they talk about whether Kaepernick has been blackballed i said i 've sat in a number of NFL uh, meetings, and I never thought that as a group they could agree on anything so that if they <laughs> thought somebody could help them win, somebody would sign him. but it seems very, very curious. That some of the quarterbacks who are getting signed, their resume can't stand up to Colin Kaepernick, and he can't get a job. If you're uh, who did, who lost the starting quarterback this week? Oh, the 49ers, uh, and that he's not on their is, list. Is, to me, it's is, just, is, is
2: that ironic right, where he right, came from? Right.
1: <laughs> right, where he came from. To me, is just is just amazing that. Uh, and, and so I'm I'm sort of my thought process is sort of moving to the fact maybe they are blackballing this guy, you know, because it, it, it's too much of a coincidence that he can't get signed and 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 either can Eric Reed I'm looking at you know there's some team lost two safeties and Eric Reed who was a good player can't get signed
2: yeah i keep waiting to see if there is some sort of smoking gun that exists if there is an email or a memo or uh, you know with the old uh uh, was the USFL, NFL case? If there was a, a, a seminar at Harvard where the idea of doing something like this was discussed, it, it is it is so striking. But but I, yeah, my experiences are you know I wasn't as, as intimately within clubs as, as you were. My experience across sports leadership amongst owners is these kinds of agreements are very difficult to bring about. So um, and the idea would there be uniform league think that we'd all would have the same opinion that this guy would be too problematic in our locker room so we don't want to make this move. I, I just, I, I find it hard to believe.
1: I was at the Harvard seminar. I don't remember any discussions about that <laughs> whatsoever. <laughs> One of the things that I found very interesting the last week is, uh, or really over the last month, is here in St. Louis we had the uh, PGA tournament, uh, and it was a rousing success here in St. Louis. You know, People were 10 deep uh, following Tiger. And uh, I noticed that the people rooting for Tiger were black, white, men, women, old, young. And, you know, as I say, Tiger never had the reputation of being all that friendly. Uh, he then ended up getting in some controversy, you know, marital controversy, women controversy, uh, right. drinking controversy, and he's now the most popular. It seems to me he may be the most popular athlete on the horizon these days, or not, uh, or in our landscape. Why do you think that is?
2: I'm not sure. I, I, I'm not sure. I, I was surprised just watching the the gallery behind him on the 18th in this last tournament. Right, unbelievable. It was, was was so impressive part of it, you know, again, for, for old guys, it is to see somebody come back like that, um, you know, a, a few years above Prime. That just gives you that, you know, I, I too can do this kind of feeling. But to to see somebody go through that much adversity, too, and, and to make a comeback, no matter what you thought, you do have a, a bit of thinking of huh, maybe this guy has finally come back. And, you know, it is interesting that the, you know, the major violation that, that people point to was his private Me Too moment. So he really could be cast in a whole different direction right now, but it seems that whatever steps you can take when it is a, I think we'll just phrase it as a personal domestic kind of issue, you know. Apparently, he's taken the steps that somebody should take to do so. I think mean, he received some counseling and it's kind of, and best we know. <laughs> again, you never know. These reporters are out there. His uh, quote kept his nose clean. Yeah, Maybe that's all part of it, too. I, I don't know. But the, the one thing we do know, the reason why O.J. never came back was he was not playing anymore. I mean, you know, there's something about being able to get back out there on the field to get yourself together uh, and, and to get the public back behind you.
1: Right. You, you mentioned that there's reporters out there, and it seems now everyone's a reporter. How will social media change the sports landscape?
2: You really do need to be of a different frame of mind. I mean, you know, and, and frankly, not just for athletes, for all of us. Just the idea that anybody uh, can pull out a, a phone and, and record whatever is going on at any moment. You know, so that's one side of The other side of it is when you put yourself out there, at tweeting and, and other social media paths, uh, you have to be very careful what you say, what you put out there. The, you know, we had that moment earlier this year with was it was two or three different MLB players that had these you know youthful tweets that were problematic in different ways. It it did it does cause you to scratch your head a little bit and say, okay, now how far back are we going to go on these things? Good thing about being uh, an old guy at this point, they didn't have that stuff when I was a kid. So so you know we're not in that realm of possibility of of having uh, youthful foolishness drug up. So it, it, it's it's something that that's here day, and it's only going to become, uh, lives are going to be even more transparent than they've been in the past, so uh, athletes and everybody in sport and otherwise, it's just beware, and it's a new consciousness. All
1: right. So now, as you look at what you guys are studying this year uh, at the Global Sports Institute in race, do you go in with any preconceived notions on what you're going to find out? What are you looking to find out? Uh, and what do you hope to be able to report in a year?
2: Well, you know, a lot of it is, is just making sure people have the information from the past. The, the most current kinds of things that we're looking at, issues like the Rooney Rule and whether or not such a rule has worked, whether or not these kinds of rules that help to propel an enterprise to be more diverse at the top in leadership positions, uh, are, are we doing all the things that we we need to do? So I'm hopeful that we will we'll look at those kinds of issues and, and we'll come up with some uh, answers that maybe we didn't have before, some critiques of systems that are in place uh, that that we haven't critiqued before, and to find better ways to do the things that, that that we have have out here. So, so that that's a lot of what we're trying to do for this year.
1: You were not at the last sports lawyers meeting that we had, but we had a they had a conversation about uh, the Rooney Rule as opposed to the Major League Baseball and what. Major League Baseball was arguing is that they scrapped their version, I don't even know what they called it, of the Rooney Rule, because they believed that they needed to provide training for minority and women right. candidates. And my argument back to them was, I don't need training. I need an opportunity. And just because we're minorities doesn't mean that we need remedial help all we need is a chance to sit in the room and tell you why we can do the job as well as someone else so it always makes me the hair stand on the back of my neck when people are saying that we need remediation uh, what right, we need right. is opportunity i mean there's nobody more qualified in the sports world to, to than you uh and i believe that about myself that we could lead any organization we could be the commission we don't need a remedial to do that
2: no uh, no it, it, two things two things i'll say that that's a great point one, about baseball. Compare baseball with, with, with football. You look at the very top, and you know, we know Rob Manfred and, and, and the leadership there. It's all white men. I mean, it, it, it is the clearest statement you can make about, uh, I guess we don't have enough consciousness about this because we've got, you know, in our top you know, six employees, if you think it's top six in the NFL versus top six at Major League Baseball. To the NFL's credit, it's black men in, in and out of there, and, uh, not in Major League Baseball. And the second, the, the, the term we all need to re-explore that I've got people thinking about and I'm trying to think about a little bit more is this unconscious bias phrasing. Right. Look, at this point, it's just bias. I mean, it's not, you know, you, there's enough information out there for people not to go up to two black men at Starbucks and, and throw them out. That's bias. You weren't unconscious. You knew you were there because they were black. <laughs> I mean, It wasn't, right. wasn't, wasn't some, right. you know, subliminal kind of moment. So you've raised a great issue. Just it is fairness, equality, that's, that's all we need is you know, well, I'll disagree with you a little bit. We do need to find ways to move those people that won't move. And I don't know what the, the right systems are. I don't know, if, you know, for example, the Rudy rules the right way. But we do need to continue to address the issues.
1: No, I, I think we do need to continue to address the issues. Okay, Ken, my, my final question to you is, and I know you probably think you should have this position, but you're the czar of sports. <laughs> How are you fixing it? In five years, with Ken Tropshire is in charge of sports and has an unlimited budget and unlimited authority, what do you want to see the sports world look like?
2: You know what? I, I had the opportunity to um, uh, do some work with this tribe in South Africa, the Royal Bofficking Nation, 300,000-person tribe, I think of it was, like Native American tribes in the U.S., and, and after open elections in, in 1994 with, with Mandela taking charge, they finally had access to all this wealth that was on their own, platinum wealth, and billions of dollars of wealth. So I, I met uh, with the king there, and I didn't get any of the money, but I met with the king of this tribe, and one of the things he told me is, you know, we've never been able to have sport in our tribe, in our community, because the Afrikaners, the oppressors, thought it would help us get too organized. So they didn't want sport in here. Now we have a chance to introduce sport for the first time in our schools. How would you do it? And I, you know, this is 1990. I don't know what, what year it was, but you know, and it was to me. It was a striking question. If we could redo everything, what would we do? And my short answer was, you got to find ways at the base of the pyramid to keep as many people engaged in sport for their entire life. As possible, and the, the tip of the pyramid, the pro level, we got to make that a lot less important. We got to kind of move this whole thing from being a, a pyramid kind of structure to being more of a, a rectangle that we can all continue to play uh, forever in some kind of way. So, so that's a, a long way to say uh, a greater engagement, sport for all, in a positive kind of way. To me, is more important than, than all the, the glorious stuff that we watch on on Sundays and, and other days.
1: Okay, grow well, great. Thank you, Ken. Uh, as as I said in my introduction, Ken is one of the thought leaders in, in this industry and always insightful, always thoughtful. And, Ken, I really appreciate you taking the time, uh, interested to see what the Global Sports Institute comes up with in the next uh, year or so and, and some of the findings that you have and recommendations and education that you provide to those of us in this sports space.
2: Well, thanks, Bob. Appreciate it. This podcast
0: is for informational purposes only and should not be considered legal advice. The transmission of information on this podcast is not intended to establish and receipt of such information does not establish or constitute an attorney-client relationship. The choice of a lawyer is an important decision and should not be based solely upon advertisements.